Welcome to another episode of Theology.fm Podcast. I'm your host, Jeremy Myers. We've got another message today from N.T. Wright. He is going to teach us his view on the parable of the prodigal son. I don't know about you, but the parable of the prodigal son has been an endless source of fascination and interest for me over the decades. Sort of seems like every year I learn something new about this parable, which causes me to see it and apply it and try to live it in a whole new way. Sometimes I identify with the father. Sometimes I identify with the prodigal son. I should say a lot of times. Sometimes I identify with the older son. Eh, sometimes I identify with the servants. Anyway, sometimes I just see things in the parable that, that make me just amazed at how Jesus could pack so much into this story. Anyway, so I was thrilled to see what N.T. Wright, or I should say to hear what N.T. Wright had to say about the parable of the prodigal son. And I think you're going to enjoy it too. So uh, I'm just going to get out of the way and let N.T. Wright Wright do his thing. I'm very grateful for the welcome and indeed for the invitation to come back here. And I have a little confession to make that for the last seven years I have felt guilty whenever I have thought of First Baptist Church Vancouver. Because seven years ago, almost exactly to this week, not quite but nearly, I was preaching here and I took as my text Psalm 24. And uh, I chose a title from that psalm. And when I arrived at the church on the Sunday morning, seven years ago, there on the board and my wife was so impressed that she took a photograph of it, it said, Who is the King of Glory? Reverend Tom Wright. (laughs) So every time I have thought of that and have looked at the photograph album where my wife dutifully stuck that photograph, I have felt, oh dear, I have to do something about this sooner or later. So this week, as you will have seen, it says much more appropriately, the prodigal son, the Reverend Tom Wright. (laughs) And actually there's more appropriateness than I had intended because that song tugs at my heart. Here I am, far from home, in a foreign country. I don't think what I've had to eat exactly fits the carob pods that the prodigal son did, but I hear my family calling me and I'm this evening getting on a plane to go back to my native land. Uh, though I hope, that, I hope that the welcome that I receive there will be commensurate with the one in the story. Now, the, the trouble we find, I think, in reading a story like this and getting something out of it and getting ourselves inside it is that we know it too well. I've known this story as long as I've known anything. Bible stories in Sunday school and at home. I was brought up in a home where we read this kind of stuff. And the temptation is to get to Luke 15 and think, oh, it's that one again. We know this story, and there's not really anything fresh to come out of it. Again and again in my own work, and I teach New Testament studies, as was said, I find that the way through that is to go back and start asking some questions about what it actually meant then on the ground, and to put off jumping to us for a few minutes until we've thought a little bit more about what was really going on then. And I suggest that if we think into the situation of first century Jews, Jesus' basic audience, then we at once ought to be confronted by a striking fact about this story. If you told a first century Jew a story 
about a scapegrace son who went off in disgrace into a country a long way away and then who astonishingly came home and who was amazingly welcomed back. I think any first century Jew hearing that would know that you were talking about the exile and restoration of Israel. Israel's consciousness was formed, just as my Christian consciousness growing up was formed by the parables of Jesus and stories about Jesus, so Israel's consciousness was formed by stories about her own history, going back to Abraham, Isaac and Jacob, and then through the Exodus, the time before, when Israel had been in a foreign country and God had brought her back home extraordinarily by a great act of grace, but then particularly after the toing and froing of the monarchy and Israel's sin, we have the great story of how Israel went in disgrace into a foreign country and then how amazingly God brought her back and had promised to restore her, not just in a little way, but fully. And indeed, in Jesus' day, this is a point which is not usually recognized, but which I've been emphasizing to my class at Regent this last week, in Jesus' day and Paul's day, most Jews were still under the clear impression that the exile was not yet over. Okay, they'd come back geographically, but they were still in exile in the sense that there were foreign overlords ruling them. They were still in exile in the sense that the temple had been rebuilt, but it wasn't yet all that it should be. It was run by a corrupt administration, by a bunch of jumped-up aristocrats who had made themselves into chief priests, and any Jew worth his or her salt knew that there was more, that the prophecies of Isaiah and Jeremiah and Ezekiel had not yet been fulfilled, and they looked for the real return from exile, when they would be liberated from their political enemies, when the temple would be really rebuilt and God would come back and live in it. Nowhere in the so-called post-exilic literature does it say God has returned to live in his temple. Promises that he will, nowhere does it say that he has. And that will be the time that they look forward to when God will forgive their sins. Of course that is the forgiveness moment because the exile was the punishment for sin. And until the exile is truly over, sins have not been truly forgiven. And the great picture that Ezekiel offers for the return from exile in his chapter 37 is of course resurrection. I will open your graves and raise you from your graves and I will bring you back to your own land and you will be my people and I will be your God. So the people of Jesus' day cherished a hope for a real return from exile, a real rebuilding of the temple, a real return of God to his people, a real resurrection a real forgiveness. And now here is Jesus telling a story about exile and return. And the return is forgiveness. And the forgiveness, we had it twice in the story, is resurrection. This my son was dead and is alive again. This your brother was dead and is alive again, was lost and is found. These are the echoes that a first century Jew would rightly pick up from the story which Jesus has told. It's not just a story about individuals. It's a great story about the whole covenant purposes of God and how he is fulfilling those purposes. But, when the exiles returned, in the time of Ezra and Nehemiah and all that, there were some people who didn't want them back. Some people who were rather displeased to see this crew coming back from Babylon. 
There were some people who'd been living in the land all the time who had not gone to Babylon. Not very many, but some. And those people were, among others, the beginnings of the race that we know as the Samaritans. And if you read the story of Ezra and Nehemiah, a foundation story for post-exilic Judaism, again and again we find opposition. We don't want these Jews back again. We don't want them building the temple. We don't want them in the land. We've got it sewn up for ourselves, thank you very much. And Jesus, in telling this story this way, with that elder brother bit at the end, that some commentators think is a bit of an anticlimax, no. That is part of the real thrust of the story. That if what Jesus is doing is fulfilling the covenant purposes of God and bringing God's people back from exile truly at last, then those who don't want to know, those who are objecting to Jesus, are neatly cast within this storyline in the role of the Samaritans, the opponents of the true people of God. Now, if you can keep that set of ideas in your head, then this parable is going to resonate in ways that you never imagined before. Because Jesus' retelling of this story was, of course, highly polemical. Here he was, going around Galilee, announcing that God was becoming king, but that it wasn't happening in the way people expected. And here he was, welcoming all the wrong people into the kingdom. Welcoming the tax collectors and sinners, Luke says in chapter 15, verse 1, which is the overall setting for this and the other parables there. Jesus, instead of endorsing the righteous, high-minded aspirations of Israel, that they would be an ultra-holy people and anyone who had anything wrong with them would be excluded, Jesus instead is welcoming the outcasts. He's inviting the sinners to come and eat with him. And the Pharisees and the scribes are grumbling. Because Jesus' way of restoring God's people is shocking. It is scandalous. It's out of line. Just as in Luke 4, Jesus announced in Nazareth from Isaiah 61 that the great day of liberation was coming, but then he spoke about it being a time when the pagan nations would get blessed, not just Israel. They were shocked by that. So all through Luke, we find Jesus announcing that the great moment is here and saying and dra dramatizing the fact that it's not looking like people imagined it would. So that the thrust of the parable within the immediate ministry of Jesus is to say, resurrection is happening here, right under your noses, and you are so blind that you can't see it. And if you go on in that blindness, you are writing yourselves out of your proper place in God's story and into the place of the Samaritans, who are there simply as the objectors to God's grace. They are opposing the return from exile. So Jesus' retelling of this story of Israel, now in the shape of a story of a father with two sons, Jesus' retelling radically undermines the position of his opponents and radically affirms the rightness of his own actions, scandalous though they seemed, as the kingdom-bringing actions. So Jesus' story, therefore, functions as a picture of his whole ministry. This, he says, is what he was doing throughout. This story will explain why these scandalous actions are actually the appropriate actions when he is bringing in the kingdom. And behind that, we also see something about Jesus' proclamation about who God is, the God in whose name Jesus is acting.
But before we can get to that, we've got to take another step back into the first century world. This time into the world which gives this story its local colour and flavour. This story fits and makes sense in, of course, the world of Jesus' day, which was the peasant society of the Middle East. And those who have studied the peasant society of the Middle East, both in the ancient world and still in some parts, where television and other things have not reached in the modern world, those who have studied that have come back with certain things which we in the West would never guess reading this story. Let's just run through the story and see how different features of it would be heard within that culture. First things first, in that culture no son ever asks for inheritance ahead of the father's death. Dr. Kenneth Bailey, who has studied this stuff more than most in our generation, says that he has had a habit going around the Middle East where he's been a missionary for 40 years of asking in different villages have you ever heard of a son asking for his share of the inheritance before the father's death? Shock, horror, certainly not. Why not? Because that is, in effect, wishing that the father were dead. I can't wait for you to die so that I can have my inheritance. And Bailey said in all his travels, he only twice found somebody who said, yes, I did hear of that happening. And in the first case, the father had beaten the son within an inch of his life. And in the second case, the father had died the following week because the son had effectively, so he felt, cursed him. To ask for the inheritance, therefore, is to shame the father, is to curse the father, is to say, I don't care about you, I wish you were dead. And the father in that society Everyone in the village would know. Everyone in Jesus' audience would know. The father in that society would be exceedingly angry. As angry as he could possibly be, the son would be lucky to escape with his life. And then we read Luke 15:11. There was a man who had two sons. The younger said to his father, Father, give me my share of the estate. And we read it so artlessly, without a thought, so. And the audience think, so. He beat him up, he threw him out. So. He divided his property between them. What is this? Nobody behaves like that. What is this father thinking about? There is a shock here, a deliberate shock. But then it goes on, because the son, within the culture of the time, not only goes off and squanders his property, but ends up feeding the pigs for a Gentile master. One of the rabbis, in describing the lowest levels to which Jews can sink, describes feeding the pigs for a Gentile master as pretty well the rock bottom. That's the lowest of the low. That's how this would be heard. It's not just a rotten job out on a farm, it's an unclean job. And it's in that light that the son returns home. And again in that culture, if you've gone away, left your family, left your village, the only way you will ever come home is if you've made good, is if you've hit the big time is if you've come back with a swagger in your step and money in your pocket and tales to tell. This son brings double shame on the family and on the village by daring to come home. And what does the father do? You know, I think this parable isn't actually the prodigal son. I think it's the prodigal father. We have prodigal, generous, extraordinary love poured out here. 
the first thing we see is that the father is watching for this son. That's extraordinary in itself. But then the next thing breaks all the boundaries. In the Middle East, to this day, in the peasant culture, which still obtains, senior members of the community do not run. Do not run. They don't even walk fast. It's undignified. And dignity matters enormously to this day in the Middle East. To be undignified in any way is just unthinkable. So that for the father to run has the same effect as if I had come into this church this morning to preach a sermon wearing a pair of bathing trunks. You would be shocked. This is not what you expect. This is the effect of the father running. He is throwing his dignity to the winds. I don't care what the village thinks. I don't care that this son is in disgrace and is bringing double shame. I love him. He is my son. He is back from the dead. That is the force within that culture of the act of running. And he throws a party for the whole village. You don't get through a fatted calf just with a father, mother and two brothers or even with the rest of the household. This is the kind of party like a wedding party where the whole village would be invited. This is prodigal love. And he brings the best robe which is certainly a robe that he himself had worn and shoes on the son's feet because it's sons who wear shoes, whereas slaves pretty certainly didn't. The father's extraordinary behavior. And then again in that culture, the older son's behavior. The older son also shames the father. He quarrels with him in public. And again in that culture, sons do not quarrel with their fathers, especially in public. And what does he say? He says, I have slaved for you. Did you pick that up? The, the, the younger son says, I know I'm not worthy to be called a son. Let me just be a slave. At least he doesn't quite finish the sentence, but that's what he'd intended to say. The older son, who has been a son all these years, says, no, I've just been a slave. The older son is surly and mealy-mouthed and shames his father by arguing with him in public. And he, too, implies that he wishes his father were dead. All these years I've slaved for you, you never gave me any of the property so that I could have a party. You never let me have my share of the inheritance. Oh yes, you divided the property between us, but you still were in control of the bit that I was going to inherit. And within that culture, the resonance is clear. Just as the younger brother had said he wished the father were dead, so now that's what the older brother was saying. Wish you were out of the way, then I could get on and have my fun and run this thing my own way. And again, the father's amazing generosity in front of all the guests watching as this dignified figure, having already lost two-thirds of his dignity, then loses even more, because instead of throwing the older brother out, he goes out to him and reasons with him graciously and gently. And the final thing we see within this peasant culture is that the story ends too soon. This is quite deliberate in Jesus' telling of it. You know how it is with some well-crafted short stories, when just when you're getting to the point where you want to know what happens next, the thing finishes, and the writer is saying to you, you've got to work out what would happen next. It's a trick that some storytellers use. And Jesus is using it here. Because the story is unresolved. We want to know what the guy did. Did the older brother come back in or didn't he? Did the two brothers have a fight the next day? 
Did the older brother now leave home in disgust, leaving tragedy behind him, or was there reconciliation? Jesus deliberately brings the story to that point, leaves it, as though to say to his hearers, fit yourselves into this story, and then you act out its conclusion. Because in this light, what is Jesus saying? Jesus, in his own ministry, is acting out the Father's role. He tells the story of the prodigal father to illustrate and to undergird and affirm his own welcome to outcasts. That's what he's doing. This astonishing, shocking welcome to those off the street, to the tax collectors, to the sinners, to the people outside polite society. And then also, his gentle address to his opponents. He doesn't simply slam back at them. He tells this story in such a way as to say, hey, watch out, you're casting yourselves in the wrong role in this story. There is still time for you as well to turn and come back. So Jesus is acting out the welcome of God. The welcome not only of the waiting father, as one great preacher of our generation called this parable, but of the prodigal father. The exile of Israel was because of Israel's idolatry. Israel had, as it were, been saying to her, God, I wish you were dead so that I could get on worshipping these idols. And instead of God blasting her out, God says, very well, if that's the way you want to be, you cannot fall out of my love, but my love will turn into grief and you will go into exile. That is the theological reason for exile. That Israel has not fallen out of God's love, but that the love has turned into grief. So that when Israel is then brought back, this is because God has thrown caution to the winds. God has forgiven her for saying, I wish you were dead. And God has allowed his love to reach out and welcome her back again. God is now wooing Israel back. And Jesus is saying that's precisely what's going on in his ministry as he welcomes those outcasts. But then when the older brother, the scribes and Pharisees in the story opposing Jesus, when they are saying, I wish you were dead, what does Jesus now do? These tax collectors and sinners are thrilled that Jesus is welcoming them, but these older brothers are still saying to Jesus, we would rather not have you do this. We would rather not have this generous prodigal love acted out in our midst. And what does Jesus do? He says, you wish I were dead? Okay. Okay, and Jesus goes to his death, living out the rejection of his people. He came to his own, and his own received him not. And Jesus, therefore, in a strange way, gets so identified with the prodigals, with the wastrels, that it is almost as though when we look at Jesus on Calvary, he himself is the son off in the far country, shamed, naked, hungry and thirsty, dying alone, but then confident of resurrection. So what we find in this parable is that Jesus is acting out the truth about God, the truth that is so stunning that we always are in danger of forgetting it, the truth which we grasp maybe when we become Christians, but then it is so big that we cannot put it in our pockets and we are then tempted to forget just how big it is. This is the truth about God. That the human race as a whole has said to God, I wish you were dead. It's there in Genesis 3. That's the effect of the fall of the human race. 
The human race would much prefer to have its idols which it has invented out of the earth, out of the world which God has made. And it would rather not have this God. And what is God's response to that? What would any dignified God do? He would say, that's enough of that. End of conversation. Scrap the whole show if that's how you're going to be. But this God says, very well, so be it. And in allowing the human race to sin, God always intends that sooner or later he should be the one who takes onto himself the punishment which was coming. God stretches out his hands and dies in and through Jesus of Nazareth. And having done that, when people still question, when people still say, after Jesus has come and done all that, when people still say, we don't want this God, we don't want this gospel, we don't want this message, it's too shocking, it makes our pride be crushed before this love and this grace, God still continues in stretched out generosity, like the father going out to the older brother, to say, look, there is still time. You can still come in. I want you in my party. So the parable gives us the entire story of the gospel, from creation through fall, through the story of Israel, through the redemption of Jesus, and on to our day too. Because what are we going to do with this? For Luke, I think it is clear that Luke, in putting Acts in parallel with his gospel, is directing this especially at the welcome which went out to the Gentiles. Not just to tax collectors and sinners within Israel, but to Gentiles outside Israel. But for us today, in conclusion, three things, I think, which we are to grasp. First, a fresh vision of the astonishing, generous love of the true God. Because we all say and have said, maybe not in so many words, but certainly in our behavior and certainly in the way we act, we have all said to God, I wish you were dead. I wish you weren't there. I wish I could just get on and run my life my own way. And God says, all right, so be it. And God has come and died for us and been shamed beyond belief for us. But even now we still say, do we not? Even though we may be Christians. Okay, I know Jesus died for me, but I still want to go on in some respect in my own way. I would just be as happy to have that gospel of the cross kept out of sight because it's interfering now with the plans that I have for my life. And God comes outside to meet us and says, yes, I know how you feel. I can see that you've got a problem there. But I am throwing a party and I want you in the party. And you may feel a bit snooty and think, oh no, I can't get involved in this stuff. I've got my own life to lead and the celebration of God's love in Christ, well, I know that's got to go on, but I don't really want to be part of it. And God is saying, come back in. The story won't be complete until you do. So a fresh vision of the astonishing, generous love of God. Secondly, a fresh vision of the church's task. A fresh vision of the church's task. Our world is in exile. The exile of Israel is a great picture for us of the fact that the world as a whole has turned its back on God. Many within the world, in exile, find themselves, like the prodigal son, bruised, battered, hungry, lonely, ashamed. They don't really know what to think about the God who made them, if they think about him at all. 
but they have a sense deep down that there must be a better way of being human. They have a sense deep down that somewhere there ought to be love waiting to welcome them. There ought to be some hope. It's extraordinary how much human beings can cling on to hope while there is still life. And when they come back, when they come to us, they may have the wrong words, they may not be dressed right, they may have the wrong ideas, they've certainly been in a big mess and we will be ashamed to think of someone being in that big mess coming into the church. Our task is to welcome them and to take the half-formed words and the half-baked ideas and to say, never mind, we want to reach out to you because the God in whom we believe is a God of astonishing generosity, unbelievable generosity, and he wants to put the best robe on them and the ring on their finger and the shoes on their feet. We, in the power of the Spirit, must be to the world what Jesus was for Israel, his people. The incarnations of the welcoming love of God. So that's the second thing, a fresh vision of the church's task for all those outcasts who are feebly struggling and longing to come back in to the love of God. But then thirdly and finally, a message for our culture in exile. A message for our culture in exile. Our culture today, in the 1990s, is in a peculiar state of exile. Where I live, and I think it's true across the Western world, we see violence on the increase. We see respect for human beings going right down. We see all kinds of phenomena which make even people as comparatively young as I am say, we are heading in a rough direction, I don't like it. Our culture, like the elder brother, has said, wish God were dead. We've heard about Jesus, but we don't want to hear about a loving, generous, welcoming God. And now we must continue to present to the whole world, not just to those who come with obvious needs, but to the whole world, to the whole culture, to the whole society, the fact of our generous, healing, inviting, loving God. We believe, you see, in a prodigal father. We believe in a prodigal son in the sense of Jesus, so generous that he would go into the far country and become shamed to death for us. We believe in a prodigal father. We believe in a prodigal son. We believe in a prodigal spirit. The spirit poured out so richly, full measure, pressed down, shaken together and running over. And our task now is to be by the power of that spirit those who can proclaim the gospel of that Son so that the world may see and know and accept the love of that Father. Well, as with everything from N.T. Wright, that was fantastic. I hope you enjoyed what he had to say. If you did, I strongly, strongly encourage you to try one of his online courses. I've always wished that I could have gone over to the UK and studied under N.T. Wright, even contacted him a few years ago to begin that process. And he and I exchanged a few emails, it just didn't work out. So I was thrilled to see these online courses, and I've signed up for every one so far. I hope you would uh, take at least one of them as well. And they're super cheap. If you go to seminary, you're going to pay about $900 to take one course at seminary. But right now, you can get one of his courses for 
Boy, $50. Well, some of them for uh, less than $100. There's a couple that are around $150, but it still is dirt cheap. So uh, if you want to learn more about that, there's links on my site, theology.fm slash ntwrite slash 14. And uh, there's a little bit more information with links to where you can get those courses as well. If you take one, you will not be disappointed. I promise. Anyway, thank you so much for listening. I hope what he taught you about the prodigal son was insightful, challenging, and encouraging as well. That's the entire goal of the Theology.fm podcast. Ultimately, finally, of course, I hope that what you learn on this podcast is going to inspire you and encourage you to help your life and theology look more like Jesus Christ. Thank you for listening. See you in two weeks with another episode of Theology.fm.